big yo how are you doing folks run through kind of the usual intro um me and maka have a bit of a car crash introduction at the start we deliberately kind of um <laughs> provide a little bit of com comedy and levity at the start um just to kind of offset what can often be quite deep and uh, in-depth conversations later on down the line so it's just a way to ease the audience in a bit so uh, it, some guests can find it a little bit unnerving because it, it does look like we're derailing the show within 30 seconds, but <laughs> we, we, ha we have a plan. We do have there, a plan. There are, there are moments all right, where guests have just literally gone, what the fuck have <laughs> I actually signed up for? Uh, okay. Yeah. That being said, you, you, you are free to be our first guest that leaves. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, um, excellent. Excellent. Right, yeah. You ready, Maga? Yeah. Sweet. <clears throat> Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 42 of the Simple Life podcast with me, Simba Carter, and I'm joined as always by my co-host and cohort, Mr. Maga. How are you on this evening, sir? He was practicing this week. There wasn't a single fucking blemish in that sentence. <laughs> um, well, yeah. I mean, you sent me a message last night at about what, 9 o'clock or whatever, p.m., and it was said... Good morning, brother. <laughs> also, I just noticed I'm I'm like a little uh, piano accompanist here. Dun, 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 dun. That's that's the weirdest camera angle ever, isn't it? I like it's it. It's just the curious. More central, but you know, it is what it is. Fuck it. I'm just curious. What's with the plastic? Because the only time I see that is in mob movies. Oh, you know, like it's in oh. <laughs> like one of the Lethal Weapon movies. The guy walks in the office and it's all over the floor, and he knows he's done. That's subflooring. That's for underneath laminate. This is the most boring thing in the world. There isn't any dead bodies in there, unfortunately. Oh, boo. I mean, it could have been the most exciting thing in the world of being bubble, bubble wrap, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for some of our viewers and listeners, you may need this bubble wrap. See that? Beautiful segue for tonight's guest and the topic of conversation. Yeah, I'm proud of that one. I'm proud of that one. Um, tonight's guest is a researcher, activist, and social, social entrepreneur promoting the rights of marginalized and often criminalized communities around the world. She's the founder of Umbrella Lane, a nationwide sex worker-led project that pioneers lived experience, leadership research, consultancy, and builds projects to affect, affect system change. She's also a board member of Recovering Justice. Uh, for you fine listeners, you may remember episode 18. We had the founder of Recovering Justice, Fiona Gilbertson, on. Do go back and check that now. But without further ado, our guest this evening, Dr. Anastasia Ryan. How are you? Hi. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's... Um... Yeah, lovely to be here finally. I know we had to cancel the first one that we'd organised, so it's really nice to get on with you guys. Yeah, it is indeed. We, I mean, such freak events as the sun actually coming out in Scotland. I know. <laughs> this has been happening a lot lately. It's really testing us all. <laughs> it is. It's interesting. So we we look around the world and we see uh, headlines of Dubai creating its own rain. You know, floods in in China, in Belgium, in Germany, wherever in Scotland. Just like we saw the sun. I know. That's the ultimate sign of climate change and arbiter of the end, isn't it? I feel like here we don't really know how to handle it. Everybody's walking around sunburnt now. Mm. Bless the world. Are your, your children okay? Have they recovered from their yeah, sun exposure? They have, yeah. Oh, now I feel like a very bad mother not putting enough sun cream on them. <laughs> how, how, could you, how could you know? You were brought up in Scotland at a time when, again, the sun is seen a few days a week. I mean, I'm from northern England, so we're not much better, to be fair. Although, actually, this year it has been bloody warm, to be fair. No. Climate change, eh? <laughs> yes, well, that is uh, fact that I can't speak this evening. Overly caffeinated. That is thankfully not the topic of discussion uh, for this evening. Um, as the introduction sort of alluded to there, you work around uh, 
championing sort of fair rights and a legal sort of regulated um, system for sex work. Could you, I suppose, first of all, define sex work for our listeners? Because a lot of people are going to hear that and not really understand it. A lot of people are still using a quite archaic term in prostitute. Yeah. So we use the term sex work. It was coined by a great activist in America, Carol Lee. Um, I couldn't even tell you the date, but the whole point of coining this term was to to go against that notion of prostitute, which brings forward so much kind of stigmatizing thoughts and stereotypes and even the, the actual definition of prostitute within the dictionary, like actually infers things like stigma and like immorality and these sorts of things as well. So she coined the term sex work to really allude to and recognize the labor that's involved. So it's, 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 it's based on adults who engage in consensual selling or exchanging of sex. And that's usually for money, but it may also be for things like for drugs. It may also be for a housing situation. It might be transactional in terms of it being a relationship that's built on you know, one person um, buying things and then the other person providing that sexual service. So it, it denotes that the it's, it's to talk about and elicit the idea that it is a form of labor. And when we stigmatize using the term prostitute, and um, we're not just stigmatizing the person, but we're also devaluing the work that that person does. So we use the term sex worker as they do now around the world within the sex worker led rights movement. Interesting, very concise and I suppose, yeah, per- perfect answer to it. <laughs> so, I mean, so what um, what led you into, into this um, sort of, this fight, this campaign? So I started, so when I was kind of doing my degree, but I guess all through young adulthood, um, I always thought of myself as a feminist. I was really into kind of feminist study and reading. Um, and yeah, I guess on a personal level as well, really that came into play a lot in my life and just being quite obsessed with feminism as I was older, that maybe it was explaining a lot of the ways that I felt in terms of my own relationships, the family structure, certain things that had kind of happened in my childhood. And then in my third year of doing an undergrad, um, I had the opportunity to go away to California for a year. Um, and I worked over there in the in the women's center, they called it. And the one thing that everybody was, you know, with every other feminist issue, the big ones like domestic violence, rape, sexual assault, these sorts of things, but everybody, all feminists there came together and agreed on what the approach should be, the fact that it was related to patriarchy and also that the laws weren't there to support women. And then the ones on pornography and prostitution were the ones that just incited this really fierce debate between feminists. So I started becoming quite interested in it at that point. I then went on to do um, a master's, a research master's. And at that point, I definitely came from the other side of the argument because I had never, to my knowledge, met sex worker. I think I went in quite naively to think, naively, but also in a way that I think many people do now, like many privileged people in particular, many white people, they, they have this view of women who do sex work that's given to us by the media, that they're poor women, that they're victims, um, that we should go in and rescue them. Like this is the kind of narrative around it. Um, and I met one woman in Aberdeen, um, and I was very fortunate that she agreed to meet me because when I met her and I came from this point of view, obviously I didn't say that out loud, but, so basically told me that I was really daft um, and she wanted me to go up there and spend some time with her, some people that she worked with. So I did that for three months up in Aberdeen um, I spent time with her, with her family, with her friends, with her colleagues and um, kind of saw where they worked and really just 
thought, God, this whole interpretation I've had of it from reading books is nothing like what the reality is. And the reality really was that these were people who were engaging in a form of labor, but they felt that the laws in place and the stigma around it, um, especially, was creating unsafe working environments, but it also meant that any time that they were in situations of violence or exploitation or abuse, that they felt that they couldn't then go and access justice. So this really started the kind of insight into it um, and then went on to do a PhD, still kind of looking into this area, but working specifically with sex worker collectives uh, or sex worker collective here in Scotland and then one in New Zealand where the laws are different. Um, and just kept studying it. And then I went on to work in the area. And then that was where I started to work with sex worker led groups around the world. And I think the injustice that I'd seen here in Scotland that was facing sex workers was in comparison to people in mainly global south context. I was working in high HIV prevalence context, so mainly Southeast Asia and in Africa. But what I saw there, that it wasn't just the injustice of the laws and a non-recognition of sex work being work and being valued as such, but there was this other much more insidious, implicit form of control that was really um, damaging sex workers' lives. And this was international NGOs, the kind of far-right um, Christian movement as well, the fundamentalist Christian movement, going in and trying to rescue sex workers and creating this whole narrative around how people need help. And then in that context, you know, we would see it here in the news that 100 sex slaves have been rescued from a brothel in Cambodia and actually seeing what the reality of that was. It was state authorities, the police were going in, taking the sex workers out of their workplace, out of their home and their children and putting them into detention centres. And there they wouldn't have access to ARVs if they were living with HIV, for example. They would be there and then they would come out and the cycle would start again. They would go back into sex work and then all of a sudden they'd be rescued and rehabilitated again. And yeah, we would see it that all these sex slaves had been rescued and into other forms of employment. But the reality there was that there wasn't other forms of employment and people needed labor rights and they needed to be able to work in safety um, and to not face violence from the police, from NGOs, from these big kind of rescue operations. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people listening to this and hearing this are exactly that they're coming from the savior mentality. They're coming from a point of privilege where they can't understand the idea that to be left in a position where all you have is your body to sell. Yeah. When, when under capitalism, all we do is sell our body. Yeah, exactly. it's the, the, there's such a, a moralizing argument that I would say is predominantly or was predominantly historically created by the uh, religious institutions as a way to uh, oppress um, sort of the, how do I describe this without seeming, um, the sort of the sexual power that is within femininity, that the actually the, the cliched thing is that what do they say that men sleep with women who say say um, with anyone that can, whereas a woman chooses sort of who she sleeps with, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And there's that that kind of cliched joke. I said that really poorly, but what I mean, what I mean by that is that the ultimate power resides um, with 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 the woman in that she is the one who decides that interaction. That is the archaic sort of approach of, of most masculine, uh, of, sorry, of most men. That is the masculine mindset. Is that I am trying to put sex on the, the women of the world and those who will agree I will consummate with. Mm. And it's, it's a really archaic and old sort of entitlement. It is, as you spoke of before, that it is the definition of the patriarchy, the idea that man is, is, is above and the women are subservient. And obviously you're seeing this divide that you alluded to before between sort of the uh, first wave feminism and new wave feminism. Yeah. And I think that 
that conversation is nuanced um, to a female audience because unfortunately still a lot of the the male population of the world are still 20, 30 years behind on this. They've not really clocked onto this. They're still of the savior complex of almost like a pretty woman-esque situation of they, they can come along as, as a client, as a punter, yeah. and they, they can rectify this, this horrible situation they're in. And so yeah. that, that being said, what can be done to have a dialogue and a discourse around this idea that even if their circumstances were everything that was to be, some women will choose to and should have the right to be protected in legally creating transactions of, of sex for goods or services. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's a nuance and often we are called, so sex workers rights activists and the movement generally, we get called the pimp lobby as if we are here. <laughs> um, yeah, that we're here to make money off of people's exploitation, that we are somehow funded by people who are making money off that exploitation as well. So, I mean, it's such a, it's a really um, hostile place to be an activist. Um, so to start having that conversation around nuance within the sex industry as well is really difficult. So what we are not saying is that everybody makes, but like you say, it's capitalism. So it's not that, you know, people, some people make a choice and therefore they should have rights. Some people don't, so therefore they should be saved. You know, we all make choices within our circumstances. And I think that's it, that if for, for us, what we campaign for is decrim decriminalization as a first step. So if you decriminalise adult consensual sex work, which they did in New Zealand in 2003, also in New South Wales and Australia. So if you take away the, the criminality of it and then you regulate it from this public health and, and harm reduction perspective, then you have a good level playing field to then think about other sorts of policies that would help or support people who were in that position, not through well everybody is through circumstance but people who felt they really didn't want to be involved in sex work but they had no other option because of poverty so then that kind of gives us a platform to start talking about like redistributive policies you know economic policies ensuring that everybody has a universal basic income for example but at the moment because of the hostility when you start talking about sex workers rights it's yeah you're met with such a, a powerful I think weird alliance as well between these kind of fundamentalist Christian ideas, morality-based arguments, alongside a really powerful feminist argument as well, or a feminist lobby. So when they those two things come together, and I can't think in other situations where they do so much, um, but they come together, particularly here in Scotland, but all throughout the world, um, and create this real backlash towards sex workers' rights that's very difficult to, to open up that space for dialogue. The way that I think is helpful, um, and this is one that's kind of just, I think, starting to happen within the UK, is to start, start talking about sex workers' rights in comparison to other marginalised communities, other precarious workers. You know, like if we're not just talking about sex, if you take the sex part out of it, it's like the morality kind of goes, and then we start talking about precarious workers in general, marginalised, stigmatised populations. Um, I think myself spanning both the sex workers' rights and drug policy reform movement through involvement with recovering justice, I often try and think about, you know, in both situations, what are we talking about? Like decriminalisation is just a first step. We need to also talk about poverty. We need to also talk about policies that will alleviate that and ensure equality that we don't have. We need to talk about racism. We need to talk about structural conditions that create a context of state violence and yes, yeah, state violence towards criminalised groups. It's interesting. You raise a point there because it's, in fact, it's classism. 
because then yeah. the the image that I had in my head of the the high class escort, for example, who is then doing this to pay off a mortgage or whatever and to buy into a certain future or putting their kids through college, that's applaudable. That is a modern feminist at work. But yes, yeah, someone that is then perhaps perhaps has a drug dependency issue from uh, severe childhood sexual abuse. That then also because of that they find um, as often as the case uh, a kind of morbid comfort within the repetition of certain acts um, or is it physically working through trauma in a kind of immersive, immersive therapy kind of way um, that then they are highly stigmatized they are demonized as the worst of the worst they are yeah it, it, it's, it's interesting that it is the difference between them is ultimately is class because whether it's a manifestation through a drug dependency or through uh, self-destructive behaviors alcoholism or whatever the class can supersede that that if you have enough money for it that it's fine you just got to rehab and you pay through it and it's all good that in somehow it it hasn't damaged your character yeah 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 you're still a person whereas these people that, you know, the media, but even some, you know, I read something the other day, um, it was from a great drug policy reform activist and said, you know, and this, the worst thing that I've ever seen, I think this is what he said, the worst thing I've ever seen was a woman sell her body for heroin, you know, like that was the extent that it got to. In fact, I don't even think he said a woman, you know, her selling her body, but it's all this kind of completely dehumanizes that person, that person's no longer a person. Um, and I think that's the part that it's very difficult to get away from. And then to talk about, I think for sex workers within our project in particular, and it's more from their experiences now, it's very difficult to talk about things like you're saying there around you know, repetitive things being part of a kind of trauma bonded relationship or cycle or you know, self-destructive behaviors. For some people, sex work might be part of that, but there's no space to talk about it without accepting that it's always bad, that that is the, yeah. that is the part that is bad. And sex workers often find they go to the doctor, they go to the dentist, they go to like a, a counselor and whatever the problem is, that person will say, oh, it's because you're a sex worker. You know, it's always comes up as, and it closes down that opportunity for people to talk about things like childhood sexual abuse, other traumatic experiences. Um, we have many sex workers within our network that have went into recovery meetings and found that they can't, you know, that's the one place you, you meant to be honest <laughs> and they can't be honest about their work because they feel the stigma of that even more than they do with going in and discussing other areas of their life that they don't feel that same way about. So it closes down that space to talk about other challenges in people's lives um, and particularly services that come from this approach of sex work is the worst thing that you could possibly have happen to you rather than seeing the context of that person's choice and working with them around their other things that they wanted to go there in the first place and talk about or work through. Um, it, it alienates sex workers from going to services and where they do, they just don't disclose so they might not get the support that they are looking for. Um, yeah, we try in our project to really open up that space, our first thing is about creating love and belonging. And that's about people coming into our kind of physical spaces. Obviously at the moment it's more online spaces, but ensuring that people feel that sense of belonging and community first. And then after usually what you will find after six, seven months is that then other issues might come up in the safe space that then they can be spoken about, but ensuring that in, initially the whole thing is around safety, value um, and dignity and respecting everyone's choices. Do you, just thinking that, do you think that the a lot of the moralizing that you find in opposition comes from 
a lack of experience and knowledge, as you spoke of before, your own naivety from a, a position formed abstract of the data. Um, so if that is then the, the case, what can be done to to challenge this for for allies and what can be done to create allies that are out, outside of it? Because as you said before, the commonality between the struggle for, for recognition and reform within sex work is the same within within drugs. Um, I have literally this week been denied service uh, by the NHS because of my cannabis consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was for quite a benign entry point of therapy when, when you consider it in the grandest scale, uh, scheme, scheme of things. Um, so yeah, what, what can we do to sort of create allies and what can they do to sort of ch- help champion the cause to get it wider? Because then if it's not just coming from lived experience or from, um, from peers, yeah. I think it, it helps widen the argument. It breaks out into online, at least, uh, into different algorithms and echo chambers. Yeah. Yeah, we often think about this. I mean, I think the first point is that it's very difficult for people to speak out about doing sex work because of the stigma, but also the really serious repercussions for people, particularly parents who do sex work. And we've had numerous examples of children being taken out of a mother's care and custody when she's been found to be doing sex work particularly through coronavirus, because everybody was working from home. So sex workers who couldn't stop working, and that was mainly people who were the most precarious in the beginning, were having to work from home. And most most often children weren't around, but in the cases where they were, you know, there was no other option. So I think, first of all, thinking about, yeah, people can't come out in that same way that maybe within other movements people can about having lived experience because there's still real direct consequences that can happen. Migrant sex workers in particular as well are really fearful of their kind of, yeah, if they are here um, in a way that they have a visa, a tourist visa or a student visa, that that would be questioned if they were found to be engaging in sex work. We have people here on asylum seeking claims that do sex work that of course wouldn't want to be known to the authorities. So the first thing should be that kind of invisibility of people speaking out. The second thing is when people do speak out, the first thing that usually comes back is that they're unrepresentative. But I don't know how you can be a representative sex worker because sex work is just one thing that people do across the spectrum, across the board, you know? So there's there's no such thing, but that attack, that kind of vilification of that person has been done a lot of times. I think many people are put off standing up there and putting their head above the parapet. I think the thing in terms of the kind of solidarity between movements, those really interesting. That's one that just recently, so we did a, um, a meeting, like a kind of online meeting with Fiona from Recovering Justice. We had Neve Eastwood, uh, who works with Release, um, and Raven, who is part of National Ugly Mugs, which is a big um, reporting, anonymous reporting scheme for people who experience violence in sex work. So, and myself. So we had this conversation about how can people within the drug policy reform movement support sex workers rights and what are the crossovers and it was just such an interesting discussion um, and I think that that's where we can start it we can start looking at what are the similarities for example so we spoke about for example in sex work much of the reporting about it in the media and the sensationalization of it 
is around this conflation between sex work and human trafficking. So often we don't read much about sex work now, but we're bombarded in the media with things about trafficking. And it's all this kind of narrative about there's a victim, there's a villain, and then the state is the hero. And what I was trying to say was, you know, in terms of the reporting around county lines, for example, now it's quite similar. You know, so you think about like, so the victims are the people who the gangs go into their house and they take over. And then the, the villains are all the people in that county lines operation, despite the fact that usually that is quite low level. And then the state is the hero by going in and like cracking down on it. So even these kind of thinking about how are narratives used to justify increased law enforcement, increased budgets attached to that. Um, and also who is it kind of missing out? Like what is the nuance there? So what we see in County Lines is that it's young vulnerable people, particularly young black kids who are being caught up in County Lines operations. So they've been recruited into these operations because they're vulnerable due to poverty in the first place. Likewise with trafficking, we have migrant sex workers who cannot come to the UK to do sex work or to do any other sort of work. So to get into the UK or to leave a dangerous context where there's no other opportunities, they may have to rely on a smuggler or a person who would traffic them into the country. So there's all of these nuances that are kind of shut down by media hype and a narrative that almost kind of makes, I think people feel feel bad about coming out to say, well, what, what's actually the situation there? You know, what are the opportunities for people coming into the country? Can they come in on a work visa or a student visa or a tourist visa or whatever? And these kind of, these the artificial borders that we've created that people are being taken over, people are being trafficked over, but rather than talking about the impact of putting that border in place or what the person's missing or what they're fleeing from, we're talking about the trafficker like this big villain and then the state comes in and, you know, it's creating this hostile environment towards migrants in general. So I think thinking around how do our movements, not just um, in terms of decriminalization, I think that's the first one. It's great that if we could all support decriminalization, legalization in terms of drugs, safe supply, these things I think are easy kind of to sign up to, but looking beyond that to say, how can we challenge kind of equally harmful narratives and conflations of things like drug use with gangs and human trafficking with sex work? I suppose this brings us on to, I suppose, um... A few a few series of questions here that maybe for the average viewer and listener of this um, will help them kind of see it in a different way because obviously sex work is just limited to the physical act of selling sexual services in terms of a person to person interacting in a physical space. Yeah. Obviously, something that kicked off massively during uh, lockdown was a website uh, called OnlyFans. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on that because obviously you described yourselves being uh, derogatorily referred to as uh, the pimp lobby. Um, I've been considering OnlyFans um, as a digital pimp because they take 20% of all services and sales. So I just wondered what, what your sort of thoughts were on it as a general service and on them taking such a large percentage. Yeah, I think firstly around the percentage, yeah, that is, I mean, it's... It's something that I think people don't realize with sex workers generally that they are exploited in that way because, for example, if somebody is known to be working by a landlord, that landlord usually won't throw them out, but what they might do is charge them more rent. So because of the kind of stigma, the criminality around it, they are vulnerable to that sort of exploitation and, and abuse. Um, in terms of the rise of OnlyFans, we did see many sex workers go, I mean, like everybody else, we all had to move our work online. So like sex workers that work in person, many people try to move it, move it online. Um, 
I think the thing with OnlyFans is that many people who went on to OnlyFans and other adult service websites at the time maybe weren't told about ways to keep safe. They weren't maybe told how to maximise income without doing you know, 24 hours work. So many people went on without this knowledge, without the peer support that usually they would have had if they were part of sex worker groups where they would go on and then they found themselves working crazy hours to make a half decent wage from it. I think all of these things weren't really spoken about. What we saw in the media, again, was this kind of, oh, all these young women are going onto OnlyFans and they're not checking ages, whereas they are checking ages of people who, you have to verify your age to go onto the OnlyFans platform. What you don't need to verify your age for is to view the content. So there's these sorts of regulations that rather than, we could have been challenging those sorts of regulations rather than in keeping it a safe space, not just to sell content, create content and sell it, but also in terms of viewing that content as well. Um, I think we, I've definitely seen an expansion of people now who are looking to enter or have recently entered physical sex work, so in-person sex work, as a result of throughout the pandemic using adult service websites because of a lack of other opportunities to work in things like hospitality, to work in shops and, and restaurants and things like that. So that was the kind of many people, I think, went on to OnlyFans in a way to make some income, but then it has led to people now coming into our organization to say, well, now I'd like to actually try in-person sex work. We just recently started in-person sex work. So when people say, was there an increase in sex work throughout the pandemic? There wasn't during the lockdown periods. Many people managed to stop, but I think post lockdown, we are seeing that. We're also seeing many people that have lost jobs, been made redundant, who are turning to sex work. So now is the time that we need to be having a dialogue or government needs to be having a dialogue with sex worker groups with people with lived experience to talk about how do you keep people safe on these platforms how do you make people aware of their rights how do you make people aware of yeah it's, it's mainly safety screening but also how to make that platform work for you and also the long-term consequences of the stigma of that i think many people who were in situations maybe they went on to only fans because they had lost jobs they hadn't been told about the fact that you know when things are online you know things like um, we call it visual violence but it's basically content sharing content stealing so when somebody steals some of this content that could be used for blackmail um, and these sorts of things the sex workers rights movement and our kind of community groups in Scotland particularly but throughout the UK you know these discussions happen between sex workers and peer support spaces so I think just ensuring that you know those are created and valued and funded by the government to ensure that people actually know that there are spaces where people can talk about things like safety online. It's a difficult one because as we've mentioned a couple of times about this, the, the state acting as saviour, uh, whether it be through uh, saving victims of the, the, the terrors of drugs or through the scourge of sex work. And I think that until that narr narrative can be challenged at its core, it's, it's going to be private sector, it's going to be money generated through charitable donations, um, etc. That, that's going to pay the, the bills day to day. It's the same issue that we're kind of having with the idea of not just legalizing drugs for corporate benefit or interest, but to legalize drugs to end suffering, to end misery, to disempower the cartels, not just illegal, but the legal ones too, in, in the big pharma companies, you know, it's we live in a very precarious time. We're on the, the precipice of great revolution and great change in many areas. And I can't help but feel already from our, our brief conversation so far that there are great similarities in what it is that I fight for and struggle for, um, I suppose, in my day-to-day -day life is to just try to 
find data, find information, correlate this in such a way and present it in such a way that others will, will see what I see. And I think that one thing that has just kind of popped into my head there is, is you, you mentioned something, I made a note of it um, when I was making notes for this, is that 70% or this is from a prostitutescollective.net, 70% of sex workers in the UK are former teachers, healthcare workers and volunteers. So I can't help but feel as you spoke of before, the universal basic income or investing in these sectors and creating not just poverty wages, but livable wages is a way, is a way to prevent problematic exploitative sex work. But I think the government's argument is that all sex work is exploitative. How, how then and we kind of skirted on it before, but I mean, how do we, how do we challenge that narrative? I mean, when someone like, Pornhub was like one of the world's biggest websites. It wasn't until Vice did an investigatory um, piece on it, I think, start of last year, where they actually found the guy. The guy was one of the most unknown people in the world. Can't remember his name. It's it's Bernard, but not Bernard. It's spelt weird. He's lost a vowel. Um, and yeah, and nobody knew about this dude, but he'd made unbelievable amounts of money. They're now trying to be, uh, various people are trying to sue them in various jurisdictions around the world. And they had to remove tens of millions of unverified videos um, recently. So it's, it's almost like there's pressure from, from lawsuits from individuals, from people that are going after things like revenge porn, or as you were saying, the cloning of content from site to site where people are paid by one service provider and then that is cloned onto other services. So that, that exploita- exploitation is now starting, I think, to come to the surface. Yeah. Um, but it is mainly led by, by the people. So as you said before about sex workers themselves being afraid to put their head above the parapet, what, what can be done here? I know obviously there are services and groups, is are there union unionization movements? Are there attempts to anonymously create sects where you can say that look, this is a hundred thousand strong or whatever yeah. numbers? I think it's seventy-two thousand was the number I saw estimated in the UK. But if all of them collected together, the voting power, the the ability that you would have to to affect uh, serious political change. Yeah. But yeah, well, I think. Firstly, in terms of that saviour mentality of the state, I think that's so interesting through coronavirus in particular, what happened in terms of the fact that many sex workers, um, well, sex workers technically couldn't work anymore, people who worked in person. So they were left with no income. Um, They were left, the people who were doing sex work that were already living in poverty on the kind of skirts of poverty were um, forced to continue to work. Rather than the UK government, but also the Scottish government saying, right, this is our opportunity to be the saviour and give money. You know, like that was what sex workers needed at that point was money. They did not want to be working. Everyone was scared of coronavirus and they were putting their health at risk and they were aware of that. But we in Scotland, anyway, the Scottish government, we did a lot of campaigning around this. We need emergency income for people who are falling through the cracks here. They've got no access to things like universal credit, maybe because of their residency status. And we have other people who aren't registered to self-employed, so they couldn't access those sorts of grants. So the Scottish government eventually put out 30,000, I think it was in the beginning. Anyway, in total, I think it's been around about £60,000 of crisis money for people in this position in sex work. We are the only sex worker led group and we have a network of over 500 sex workers throughout Scotland. Um, And we were already running a crisis fund that we raised through public donations, organizational donations. So we already had a system in place for getting money out quickly and directly into the hands of people in this position. Um, But rather than giving it to our organization, the government then gave it to a kind of group of organizations who are fundamentally opposed 
to prostitution. So they believe that sex work is always exploitative or called prostitution. Um, so sex workers don't trust these groups. So the money did not get into their hands. Um, where it did, and people were so desperate that they had to go to these services, you know, the services kept saying it's not conditional. There's no conditions attached to it. It is just funding. But I think just that lack of recognition that a sex worker-led project could raise, which we did, £32,000, and distribute emergency crisis payments. We couldn't be trusted to continue to do that with government money. So I think they had an opportunity to be the saviour, and that's why sometimes it feels like it is disingenuous, particularly kind of leading groups, like the religious groups, um, the kind of fundamentalist religious groups, but also some of the groups that we call themselves feminist groups, we call them the prohibitionist lobby, or the prohibitionist groups. They were not, they weren't calling out this hypocrisy of the government saying that all sex workers are victims, saying that everybody had to stay at home, but not funding people to do so. And that was throughout the UK. So we did a lot of campaigning about that. And I think that that just showed, yeah, how disingenuous this actual saviour narrative really is. They had an opportunity to save people and um, to give universal basic income at that point for everyone and to make sure that people were not left without or left with no other option but to continue to work. Mm. Um, the thing about the unionisation is really interesting. In other contexts, they've done it really well. Um, in the UK, there was a sex worker union. It's, this isn't really my total knowledge base, I hope we don't get parts of this wrong, but there was a sex worker branch that started um, of one of the bigger unions down south, and that did seem to work, but it was very much, um, it was focused on challenging it in a certain way. It's a workers' rights perspective at the end of the day, and engaging kind of trade union style activism wasn't for everyone. So it ended up being quite a set of people who joined the union, whose voices were then heard and whose votes were then heard. And I think that there was a feeling that maybe that wasn't all always inclusive to all the voices within the sex industry. There was also, at one point, a discussion that happened about whether people who did sex work, but also, uh, profited from sex work so they might operate a managed premises for example so a brothel and um, where they take some money from the rent of other people who are working in there so should they then be but they work themselves should they then be part of the union so there's a lot of discussions to, to come out of it that I think were really great for the sex workers rights movement but I think in the end there was a lot of feeling that it was it was one type of person's activism that was, well, not one type, that's not the right word. It was people who were willing to do activism in that way and other people weren't, other people wanted to do more kind of activism from the grassroots and not do it through the trade union movement. Um, we here in Scotland had a branch of the GMB union. There was an adult, um, adult entertainment workers branch of that, um, which was actually really great for a while and I think it made quite a lot of um it had a lot of success in terms of particularly challenging the closure or the proposed closure of strip clubs here and um, so the dancers within the union were really vocal they had a big campaign called ask the 700 which was the 700 workers and in, including all the workers of so the dancers the security guys the barmen throughout the strip clubs in Scotland so it was basically trying to get their voice heard in this campaign they didn't want their clubs to be shut down and they wanted them to be regulated and made sure that they were they were safe that was their main concern mm -hmm. for sex workers within that in-person direct sex workers within that union branch there wasn't um anybody at the time 
if I if I remember rightly, who wanted to speak out publicly, and that again, so it kind of hampered it because you don't have that kind of face to a union branch. And I think you need that, whether it's within a union or whether it's within a movement, you need that kind of face to a movement. And then nobody wants to kind of put their head above the parapet, so you kind of go around in circles slightly. But in other contexts, it's worked well. Um, I think where the sex workers' rights movement has made a lot of gain is in New Zealand. And the way, so obviously, well, they managed to get decriminalisation of adult consensual sex work in 2003. But the way that they done it was, I think, partly how we kind of base our approach here in Scotland within Umbrella Lane. So they started just as a collective, the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective. Um, at the time, HIV and, and AIDS were meaning that many people were saying it's the sex workers who are spreading it, they're vectors of disease, don't visit the brothels, the saunas, they called them at the time, I think, the spas and the saunas. So it was in response to that to say, we are being targeted as vectors of disease whilst we're being criminalised, but we also don't have access to health services. You know, we want to work with you to address and end the HIV crisis at the point. We don't we don't want to be seen as those victims. So they really challenged that narrative. They worked with the Ministry of Health around how do you make health services more inclusive for sex workers and encourage things like um, regular testing, for example, and condom use between clients and sex workers. So they worked from a kind of public health harm reduction perspective and they got a place at the policy table. So they became the experts in their workplace safety. They became the experts in terms of creating health and safety guidance and who did they want to regulate the brothels? What did they want from a manager, for example? They wanted them not to have a, um, or to be able to ensure that there was safe sex supplies on the premises, these sorts of things. So they co-created the eventual bill that passed the prostitution reform bill. And you can really see that that's been designed and written with sex workers there at the table because there's so much nuance within it. It's around, like, there's so much stuff there about what do sex workers want, what do they not want, things that maybe the public might think that sex workers want mandatory testing so then they have access to testing, for example, whereas sex workers are the healthiest people that I've ever met throughout the world, like, in terms of testing. You know, people do take responsibility for our own health generally. I think if you're that was related to your work, then of course you want access to testing and testing regularly. So in New Zealand, I think that they become almost architects of that bill and you can see it there. I think that that's had a better effect, that idea of partnership, working, collaboration um, with other people and bringing people in. They have this saying that call people in, don't call them out, which is really hard when mm. <laughs> such a hostile environment. But I think that bringing people in to see that you know, sex workers aren't the people that the media want you to see or that the state want you to see or that these prohibitions groups want you to see and think about. And people are people, they're human beings. And if we can bring people into that conversation and humanise much more, then we can start by de-stigmatising and then hopefully kind of starting to do partnership work and development. But it is hard because often we think that we're getting to this great place, maybe with an organisation that thinks differently from us. And then they'll go and do something or say something in the media or they'll accept funding that should have really come to us. And so it's always a bit of a challenge, but I think that's my activism approach generally. That's, I think, to bring people in. I don't think people are bad people. It is just this lack of knowledge, perhaps, mm -hmm. and some views that hopefully could be effectively challenged. I mean, 
Very interesting. I, did, I wrote down a question that I think you've, you've answered before I even need to, um, but it actually leads me to another question that I was going to ask you, which would be a preferable model, uh, New Zealand over Amsterdam. Obviously, I think I, I can draw your, your answer. It would have been more for a point of conversation than it would have been an actual serious question. But the question, the question I'd like to ask you instead of then is how do we modify the opinion of the British mainstream media and politicians to see reform less as the red light district in Amsterdam and more as this safe sex harm reduction, you know, um, peer led lived experience model that is actually about protecting what is already there, not exploiting or creating a potential new market. Um, yeah, that I mean, it's it's so true that that is what people think when we say decriminalize sex work. They think of Amsterdam, or they think of Germany, and that's that's again quite a difficult context to to challenge because in Germany. In Germany, actually, the approach, which is legalization, is, is legal, sex work is legal. But what's happened there is in order to register as a sex worker, A, you have to pay crazy amounts of, of tax and the registration costs are really expensive. But also you need to show that you are doing, um, so it's mandatory health testing. So you need to show basically that you're clean, <laughs> that you've been for your sexual health checks and that you're not HIV positive. So there's all of these things that are still stigmatizing in place with their regulated market that what's happened is that there's an unregulated market that goes further underground where exploitation can flourish even more and that's the market that is yeah is taken up by people who are already in precarious situations particularly migrant sex workers so that's not what we want we don't want a two-tier market but people do tend to point to germany as as the model or amsterdam because everybody knows amsterdam the red light district but i think for us it's difficult as well because new zealand is even because I, when I was in New Zealand, I was there for the year doing, doing research, but also working with the Prostitutes Collective. And then um, they have this feeling within the Prostitutes Collective, like nobody sees us, nobody sees all the work that we did. Why are we just such a small context? It's like we're an afterthought to people. Um, and I think that that's been New Zealand generally, perhaps up until the pandemic. And then I think that what we have seen from New Zealand throughout the COVID response has actually kind of, I don't leverage them a bit. I think that people are looking at New Zealand thinking they dealt with coronavirus very well. They managed, they shut their borders very quickly. So I think that that maybe raised New Zealand profile in the UK slightly, which might help now. Um, but I think for me, the way that, when we talk about harm reduction and decriminalization, I can easy route in is to also compare it in terms of drug policy reform um, and services for people who use drugs as well. Um, so that's one that we can use often with politicians. Um, some politicians will take on that argument and will think about it in that in those terms, um, particularly if they have an interest in drug policy. But for some that even do think, yes, logically, that makes sense. And I believe that that should be the case around drug um, drug policy. But in terms of sex work, no, because it's morally wrong. So you just Sometimes it's just like such a barrier to get past that point, despite bringing lived experience, case studies, um, great cases that have happened in New Zealand. You know, we, there was a worker who took her manager to an employment tribunal um, and was, was awarded damages um, because he... I think um, made he sexually harassed her at work. Now that would just not be able to happen here because that relationship is criminalized. So you can't take an employer to work because you don't have employment rights. But even when we bring up cases, you know, cases like that, I think are a good context to see on a practical level, this is this is what happens. This is great. 
It's, you raised an interesting point there about, uh, I believe you said, politicians that are, if they're particularly interested in drug reform policy. The vast majority of those are ones with vested interests, as we've seen and discussed infinitum on this podcast and will indefinitely into the future, hopefully at a point where they are stopped and exposed. But until, until that occurs, that mechanism is what is accelerating drug reform in the UK. It is the investment into psychedelic for novel therapies around traumas. It is investment into so-called air quotes, medical cannabis, novel products based on um, cannabinoids, terpenes, et cetera. You know what I mean? So uh, it, are we going to have to kind of wait in a certain way till the system itself, till capitalism goes, okay, the modern worldview is, is grown on enough that we can create a Coca-Cola of sex worker, you know what I mean? In terms of like Starbucks brothels. Yeah, like I'm thinking of it, literally idiocracy just popped into my head there. If you know the uh, uh, the film I'm meaning, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, it is a hard one, isn't it? And I, I think in terms of for sex workers, yeah, it's it's slightly different in that the the kind of political gains behind it of decriminalisation would not be in any way the same as the political or the the capitalist gains, as I think you said, you said it much better than I just have, but in terms of people being able to make money from it. <clears throat> but I think that that's, when we talk about decriminalization, not legalization, where contracts where they've legalized sex work, that's what's happened. People have managed to profit off of other people's labor because it's capitalist society, whereas in, in decriminalized contexts, like New Zealand and New South Wales, whilst there is management in place in the kind of bigger brothels and the kind of show places that also have like dancers and um, they're more kind of set up as nightclubs, there's not a huge amount of them and the council still regulate how many of them there can be. But what happened after decriminalization came into place was that many sex workers who were working for a manager at that point decided to work in small cooperatives because that became legal, that was decriminalized. People can work up to four people and um, without having to have a management in place. So four people could work together in what yeah what they call a soup. So I think that what we see there is that people will choose the company and the protection and the safety of having other people to work with more or more so than they will go and working for management. So we didn't see an increase in people going working for a managed premises, but more for this kind of cooperative style of working. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I would hope that that would happen here. Although with the minute that you say that to people here around four people, the, the answer is always back from opponents what about antisocial behavior what about the neighbors you know like people are going to be coming in and out of the house and actually that is the the biggest um cause of people calling the police and the police attending a property of the sex worker is is the neighbors complaints about people coming in and out so it's antisocial behavior public nuisance style arguments so i think until as a society we become more compassionate to one another and we become more aware of like challenging our own biases around things like sex work around drug use that not every drug user is using problematically not every drug user is in need of help and rescue and being saved or rehabilitation and needs to be abstinent from drugs likewise with sex workers challenging that notion that I think neighbors probably have often it is about public nuisance but I think deep down they're also saying or often when they call the police or they call they get people call our project actually sometimes you know they might be trafficked or they might be forced so it's challenging those yeah. sorts of perceptions of people as well yeah it's it's an interesting sort of situation really I mean the thing that's sort of going through my head there is that 
is it then true that if you, you were to legalize sex work, you are creating a, exploitation? So is the same argument not then true of the legalization of drugs? Rather than creating craft markets, allowing small clubs for everything from MDMA, LSD to cannabis, and going through this backdoor system, is that not just another form of exploitation? Because it's still a form of prohibition because you're prohibiting behaviors and actions and you're restricting through regulation and the perception of kind of going, okay, we're, we're helping now, we're accepting, which it's not. It's it's just the way of perpetuating the restriction and the, the denial of reality. I mean, look, Pornhub is, the, what did I read? The ninth most visited website in the world. Yet you ask anybody, I don't watch porn. I don't watch <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Drug users, you look at the global drug surveys for the past 15 goddamn years, the highest accredited um, base of dependency is around either alcohol, tobacco, or heroin. Yet the, the still, the majority of those consumers, are, well, I hate the term, but non-problematic. They don't have dependency issues. They have a functional life. It's not destructive to their relationships or their interpersonal connections, et cetera. Yeah. Where the hell are these people? Where, until people stand up and go, yeah, I watch porn. Yeah, I do drugs. Yeah. You know what I mean? We need to recognize this because this, we're, if we're, we're adults, there is that period of yeah, childhood into adulthood that then if that is worth anything, it is worth the right to stand up and say, I engage in this behavior or this action. I am not committing any form of violence or theft or exploitation or harm within it. So why is it not brought into the light and discussed in a mature way? Because that's the thing that's missing here is this kind of discourse around this. Yeah, I think that's it. And what we see when people do do that, you know, like with Carl Hart, for example, the, mm. um, you know, like that hostility that came back, like that you know, just mutant attack back, you know, we see that often. So Amnesty International, for example, did, there was a push to get Amnesty International to take a position on sex work, on the laws, on decriminalization, or to criminalize the purchase of sex or to criminalize it completely. So Amnesty did their own research um, in four, con four different countries with four different legal frameworks. They spoke to sex workers in those contexts and they did this research then came out in support of full decriminalization. And the attack on Amnesty International was, was just horrific to read and to watch. And you think, you know, it's Amnesty International. They're not immune from that level of attack. So if it's an individual standing up and saying, I use drugs or I do sex work, then you can imagine that, that feeling of holding that. And I think that that's really the thing about become recently, because during, all the, during the work that I did globally, with the sex worker led rights movement so we were working we um nswp it was called so it has sex worker led projects throughout the world but nswp championed the voice of people with lived experience in the international public health field so at every meeting with unaids with usaid with who they would ensure that there was an equal amount of sex workers number of sex workers at the table with the number of policy makers or their people drawing up programs and things. So this became a kind of um, barometer for all the key population groups to come. So the drug user movement then said, well, we want the same thing. And then the, um, the other kind of key affected group in terms of HIV is men who have sex with men. So they said the same thing, we want equal numbers at the table. And it's about lived experience, not just engagement or participation, it's about lived experience leadership. And I think that that's something internationally that really strengthened all three movements it was huge gains internationally by the drug user movement. 
think here in the UK, and I'm not 100% sure whether this is the case, but I know that there's recently been a bit of a revival of the drug user movement, but I think that's one thing that maybe could be learned from the sex user, sex, sorry, the, <laughs> the sex worker-led movement here for reform and for decriminalisation. It is, it has numbers, it has people, it has a voice, it has an identity that I think potentially the drug user movement has lost slightly in the UK because of all these professionalised services that have come into the conversation around advocacy for decrim or for legalisation or for harm reduction. Um, what we've seen here in Scotland, I find really problematic and quite worrying is this idea that we there's a divide between the those in recovery abstinence-based 12-step recovery usually and people who, who use drugs and want reform and want harm reduction services. They want safe consumption sites, for example. They want heroin-assisted treatment. They want OST. So they, there's this kind of polarisation between is it treatment recovery abstinence-based or is it harm reduction? And the, the recovery movement in particular is almost buying into that narrative that people are using drugs because they're traumatized addicts. So let's save them, let's help them. And I think mm. that comes with a real warning sign from the sex workers rights movement who have seen that approach adopted in places like Sweden where that was the narrative, sex workers need saved, they need helped. Um, so let's criminalize the buyer, let's criminalize the client because he's the one who is, is pushing, he's the one who's, who's violating that woman, abusing the woman. And then what's happened is the sex workers who either cannot or will not exit the sex industry are just pushed further into the margins. They're still criminalized, still stigmatized, further stigmatized, and they can't access help and support if and should they need it. So I think that that's something here that we really need to watch in terms of the conversation with drug policy reform and decriminalization. You know, if we start talking about drug users as addicts or as people who've experienced trauma and we need to help and support them, what we're forgetting to say is that drug users are people and that they're human. And therefore we need to vindicate their rights, whether people are using drugs or not. And that's the part that gets lost in that kind of trauma, call it the utility of trauma. I mean, it's quite useful for the state really, eh? like mm -hmm. put all the drug users into rehab, they become responsible citizens, but then they have to take their own responsibility. So if people exit rehab, come out of rehab and then relapse, which we know from evidence that that is, tends to be the journey. Most people don't come out of rehab and stay in abstinence-based recovery. So by that point, it's almost like, well, you had an opportunity, you had help. It was up to you to become responsible mm -hmm. and therefore now you should still be punished. So I think that's something that is kind of playing out a wee bit at the moment particularly with our drug death rates here in Scotland being the highest in Europe. I think that's something in Scotland that we are um, kind of starting to witness a real, hopefully a momentum to change things, but making sure that drug users, current and former, are at the forefront of that conversation, not just former who are in recovery and in abstinence-based recovery, um, because I think there's a nuance there that we then miss. There is, especially with the... For all I have respect for a lot of people that have gone through the 12 steps uh, sort of recovery, yeah. uh, there is obviously a quite an interesting anecdote that I think we've discussed previously of Bill Wilson, who was one of the founders of the program, actually uh, facilitate, had a LSD experience facilitated by, I think it was John Hopkins University, um, in which he dealt with his own intractable depression. And he sort of went to the other founders of this and said, this, this is a thing, this needs to be sort of incorporated. It was very much shot down because of the religious ideals of it. And 12 Steps became more about faith, in my opinion, than it did about responsible uh, 
being existing as a human and that's not to belittle anyone that's gone through it i'll caveat that immediately by saying i know a lot of people who have and still are but the issue to me is that if you are 10 years in recovery have you recovered from something that if if you are not able to have it around if you are spending the rest of your life fighting the world of going this thing is evil it will get a hold of you and harm it have you really taken control of your individual narrative have you actually had the time to explore that and i think what that's now evolving into is from the mechanisms and the machinations we're seeing um that you, you've just described to now this medicinalization the pharmaceuticalization of therapies using the compounds that people are using themselves. Mm. So as we know, people that use any drug and do so problematically or uh, with a certain dependency to the point it's destructive, to them it is beneficial. It is doing something. If it is just pacifying pain, spiritual, emotional, physical, whatever, if it is literally suppressing trauma, if it has helped building uh, cognitive barriers, or if it is literally making you so out of it and lucid that you can't engage with the world, these are still medicinal benefits of a compound or a substance. And that's the conversation that was starting to develop that has now been entirely co-opted by the investment vessels that are now weaponizing cannabis in the terms of medical cannabis. Yeah. So then they're going, okay, like these are bad. It's demon drugs on the streets, but if you buy it from us, yeah. best in town, yeah. they're creating a legal racket. It's the same issue I've got with, as I was saying before about uh, OnlyFans and the 20%, is that if you are then exploiting a market that you have previously demonized, you are not a savior. You are not part of the solution. You are a perpetuation of the problem. Yeah. And so I, I get exactly what you're saying. And I think that's a, a wonderful way to tie up sort of this section of it. I'm going to go into a, a different section, but before we have questioning, but before we do, I just wanted to to bring Maka in and uh, can you share your thoughts there, brother? <clears throat> um, it's an interesting one. So... It, but for me, it boils back to tackling morality on the base level, which is uh, looking at the educational system, f- teaching kids, uh, children about about you know what I mean about this outdated uh, religious-based fucking um, uh, notion of what sexuality is first and foremost, and and the reason the reason I have uh, or bring this into light is that. It, it's sort of a twofold situation what, what we see is uh, because of the identified interconnectivity of um, of, of do you know what I mean drug drug reform and you know and sex work reform say uh, that's probably a bad, bad terminology but I'm, I'm, I'm not very good with words I'm not as good as, as, as either of the two of you but I, 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 ho- I hope to keep you on this thought, thought process but I mean, what, what, what we what we have seen is um, MPs, um, politicians, particularly that do not have any sort of intent to change any sort of any policy that is overly complex. You know what I mean? That isn't that you can't apply a single solution to. So here's it's very it's convenient that you um um basically leaving the rug over everything that's been swept underneath it in terms of you know um how how uh, poverty is into you know is interconnected into into all of these these things for for instance so we have basically lack of intent and laziness careerist careerist people um that are are only centered on their own situations so it comes back to, it comes back down to ego 
and when you when you when you're when you're clawing everything as tight as you can hoping that nothing will fucking change it's it's massive massive amounts of insecurity um so how do we tackle insecurity well you know educate it boils back to education in the end of the day that's 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 the that's the shortest point i I can make you know that kind of way about what i mean you can look you can look and say the idea was touted i think maybe last year maybe the year before about about re-looking at the way that we teach children about pornography in 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 um in schools and the knee-jerk reactionism was fucking mind melting everybody was like oh shit no fuck you you're not that's not happening do you know that kind of way um there is only the the binary fucking genders are you having a fucking do you know you had and you had people from let's say all walks of life just being completely um constricting self-constricting in that in that regard and and just not having the, the the security in themselves well do you know what i mean to 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 actually look at this properly and see that by updating this we can we can tackle this stigma um not just uh, for, for sex work but drug reform and maybe you know tackle things like like fucking racism like poverty all of these kinds of things i think that we really really need to look at the base level and how do we how do we I don't know how we get past parents shitting a brick thinking that all their children are going to be porn porn stars by you know twelve or some shit. Um, I don't know how we do that. Um, short of you know filling up a fucking biplane and, and with with fucking THC fumes and just <laughs> dousing everybody. No, it's a joke. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, do you see my point? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Actually, the Jupiter is a really interesting point that actually whether it is the criminalization of sex work or the criminalization of the consumption, possession, cultivation, production, sale of drugs, it, they are the weapons of classism. They are the, the tools of racism. Because again, it's, 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 you cannot criminalize somebody for the color of their skin or from the country of origin or from the class they belong to. But what you can do is criminalize their behaviors, their actions, the things that they tend to do, whether it be through um, their activities. So we saw with the 1994 Free Party Act, for example, it's not called that. It was a public something act, but basically meant that it was illegal for 13 more people to get together with an amplified sound system because that was to tackle rave culture. You know what I mean? But then the garden parties that they were all having. No, no, no. They put a caveat in there about that it was... Uh, characterized by repetitious beats, I think was the the terminology they put in there to make sure that their garden parties and and their meets and whatnot were were separate, you know what I mean? And so that is a very valid point. And the way you tackle that is to education because let's not fucking kid ourselves. There is some unbelievable amounts of porn on the internet. Kids have smartphones. You can get all the parental blockage. You know how fucking smart an eight-year-old is when you give it a smartphone at five? Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I talk to my nephews about phones and, and I'm like, I've had these things since I was sick. I've had these things longer than you've been alive, but the terminology, you just will use that. I don't know. I don't know what the hell you're on about. Do you know what I mean? They're so fastly evolved with this technology. They are so aware of this that unless we educate them, they are yeah. going to be ed- educated by the darkest corners of the internet, the darkest corners indeed of our souls, because we don't have the fortitude to shine a light on them and go, look, you're, yeah, you're right. I like to take drugs. Yes, I like to buy and pay for sexual services. You're, yes, I like to watch porn. 
these are the things that need to occur, isn't it? Yeah, of course, of course. But here's the other thing. Like, this is rooted in the age-old representation in, obviously, religion. We've, we brought this up. But Mary Magdalene, Jesus, right? Yeah. There's the, there is what we've been talking about this whole fucking podcast. The savior mentality. Mary Magdalene, you know, a, a, you yeah. know clearly pro, pro, portrayed as... Uh, we, we shall say a, a, a prostitute because it was derogatory in, in her in her portrayal. That's still yeah. being taught in fucking schools. They yeah. she tainted the savior, so it's yeah. the savior mentality that is that yeah. has to come in. And you know what I mean. And, it, and again, it, when it comes back to, to the insecurity side of things, people are afraid to change. And 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 <laughs> no 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 the the, the read. Um, I know that that's a, an oversimplification, but. You know what I mean? It, it, uh, any sort of degradation to the system that provides them any sort of comfort or <laughs> some invalid level of identification is, is, is problematic for them. Do you understand? You can't change, you can't change that. I, do you know what I mean? I'm here now. I'm, I'm comfortable. You can't fucking change that. I'm holding on for fucking dear life. What are you talking about? But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> You raise a very interesting point that effectively the story of Jesus of Nazareth and, and the, the original sort of Christian tale is the archetypal um, patriarchal story. Yeah. Because if you think 100%. about it, so, so Jesus, this dude gone through the desert, goes, goes to a lady of the night to use old parlance, then pays, pays for services. She then gets knocked up. He's then using basically a mindset that still pervades to this day to, to people that then go to the red light window, uh, the red light, uh, Booth say in, in Amsterdam, for example, that once the service paid for it didn't happen, never happened, it erased from their memory. Almost, it, it's just not a thing. So, that's basically what happened there. Jesus got, I don't know what's happened here, immaculate conception. You know, what I mean, I, I didn't do anything, and that, that's the narrative that's then portrayed there. He's allowed to go, Well, oh, well, yeah, we know you did it, but we'll pretend you didn't do it. In the same way, men can walk around with a fucking toupee, and everyone's kind of going, Well, we have to buy into this act, depending on how rich they are, I suppose. Um. The, the, then yeah, the, then on the flip side of this is is Mary Magdalene out there making her bank. You know what I mean? So it's probably supporting a, a small collective of women at the time. You know what I mean? Rebelling against the patriarchy of the day. She then gets knocked up because there's, there's then not co uh, sufficient contraception of the time. She then goes to take ask the man to take fucking responsibility for it. The guy fucking fakes his death <laughs> to, get, to get out of this. And that's, and that's acceptable. Not only is that acceptable, we hold this man at the highest of esteem that then millions of Christians and Catholics and people that use this as an archetypal story for their belief structure go, that's all right then. And we wonder why toxic masculinity pervades and why the patriarchy is such a hard thing. And I say that as a cisgendered white male sat here. You know what I mean? I, mean, it's, I, I, I know my position of privilege, but I am also very aware of that, that was a powerful, visceral thing. That is what that is. I've only just thought of it in that, that sense. But if you really think of it, it's fucking true. And it it's not only did they yeah. get away with it, they built a worldview around it. Yeah, that's 100% the, 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 the root of the issue. Do you know what I mean? Wow. And I think then what other women have, like I think that this idea, there's a, um, a great book called The Prostitution Prism and it talks about how the whole stigma is stigma of all women. So it's that othering of like that, every woman experiences whore stigma you know but what was she wearing did she deserve it was she drinking too much was she not being a bit flirty these sorts of kind of ideas pervade all women's lives uh, so that when it comes to kind of trying to like deflect that stigma away that whore stigma then it's the one place that we can see uh, as all women oh but then 
you're not actually selling sex. So it's like all the stigma that's directed towards women gets directed onto sex workers because of this idea of the whole stigma. And I think that that's, yes, that there's this kind of good woman and a bad woman. And in order to try and constantly exhaustingly be a good woman, you're having to put all the shit onto the bad woman. And that's, it's, uh-huh, it's a process of othering of, of certain women that I think pervades the, the feminist prohibition side of it as well, um, that that is really deep down, although it is, they talk about it in terms of savior and rescue and victimization of women. I think deep down there's a separation of their own experiences from the experiences of a sex worker and it's buying in to what patriarchy wants us to buy into and that there's a good woman, there's a bad woman. So by creating this narrative of victimhood, it's almost, just again disingenuous because actually deep down I think it is still this feeling that that's a bad woman and that keeps us as a non-sex worker a good woman. And I suppose a lot of that has its um, its seeds again in sort of I suppose religious moralizing. Yeah it is conformity. Um, in, in the, no, yeah but it's not just conformity it's the idea that sex is for procreation that, that a man is to, is to impregnate many women to help the population grow, to help a nation state grow. It's within national ideology, it's within religious ideology, it's within capitalist ideology, is that you 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 build an empire, you have a son, you pass it on. You, you know what I mean? And it's so it brings us on beautifully to a series of questions that I wanted to ask you, which I think will maybe allude to um, a potential strategy and, and way sort of out, out of this, I guess, is that it's projection. So it's men project then onto women that it's your fault my sexuality is your fault you brushed up against it you've got to deal with it you know what i mean you wore a provocative outfit near me it's your responsibility that kind of projected and then the women that like that kind of uh, attention and that en- engage with that then have yeah that that feeling from uh, the patriarchy as it were or just men in general that they are a slut for engaging that for enjoying it and that comes back to that again that religious idea that sex for fun is a sin sex for procreation is correct and should be done that's a good christian you you know i mean knock out those kids you know don't don't have abortions don't have use contraception etc so the the questions i wanted to ask you were basically around sort of men in society and one of the main ones i wanted to to discuss is something i've seen time and time again in the uh the uh articles and stuff that i read in preparation for this once i knew that you were coming on i obviously read quite quite a lot about it was the idea of sex workers ending up as being inadvertent therapists Mm -hmm. is the fact that a lot of sex workers they may sell sexual services but they end up paying getting paid to cuddle to allow men to touch them literally just rub their feet their shoulders to wash their hair not even extreme or what people some people could perceive as harmful kinks you know what i mean but literally just having that interaction i think a lot of that comes to the same uh comes from sorry a lot of the same thing we're seeing especially in america at the minute of the idea of incels involuntary celibate men that are so uh, distorted and destroyed from what society is because of the digital realms they've been brought up in the ideas of porn and the hyper violence within it and the the imagery of what the average woman wants you know what i mean um and so i'm is that as prevalent as it seems to be in the literature that women do and a lot of sex work, female sex workers end up acting as therapists to men? Um, yes, yeah, so speaking from the from working within Umbrella Lane um, and then also in terms of my own research with a number of, of sex workers, yes, I think that it is. 
and I think that that's again that comes back to when we're talking about why is it called sex work and it's a deval is to value the labor within it sex workers will often say how exhausting it is mentally um that in if they've got clients for a longer booking for example the feeling that they are really there as supporters as counselors as therapists um having to I mean I find that exhausting generally. If I need to be there to cater to somebody's needs for longer than an hour, you know, I'm a mother of three kids, so I do do that often. But I mean, it's exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. But even just you've been in company before, I'm sure, where somebody has quite drained you. You know, like if you're having, if you're in a position where your job, you're being paid to actually literally be there and listen. Um, but not recognized as a therapist or a counselor and then there's intimacy involved at the same time of course that's exhausting and I think that that's something that really comes out in our kind of peer groups when we have these community spaces is like the genuine caring nature of people and I think that within the community and within people that or in the umbrella lane community particularly seeing that come across towards each other as well and you you would have to be that sort of, I mean I could never be a therapist or a counsellor I, I don't think I'm a nice enough person or a patient enough person but so somebody's actually it's, it's about recognizing and valuing those skills and then also when somebody I think the worst thing around stigma is when somebody does want to move on to other forms of work that they can't put sex work on their CV I think is a crime in itself because this person has managed to run a business to advertise to write a narrative to do a brand to be a counselor to be a therapist market themselves in a positive way deal with conflict and negotiate and all of these skills that come from sex work that i see as they're not valued because of the stigmatization of the profession which is is horrific yeah um so i suppose on the flip side of that then we're in a very i suppose the men section of this uh of my quote my very extensive questions i'm not gonna go through all of them because there's, there's quite a few more than i realized uh, how um quite wide some of these topics really are um but i suppose is it then if we invested more into men's mental health services do you think they would see an active reduction in violence towards sex workers because as we there have been quite a few people uh theorize that the prevalence of what is termed hyperviolent porn um is causing men especially more prevalent in young men to act out quite violent um sort of sex acts without prior consent with women i mean we've obviously just seen the law change quite recently to remove um what do they call it the violent sex defense um in manslaughter cases so you couldn't say that you were choking and uh, consensually and that she passed passed out and you didn't sort of realize so there, there have been slow movements in that sort of arena but generally is it sort of true, would you say, that investing in mental health, men's mental health would lower the prevalence of violence towards sex workers? I mean, potentially. I think for me, that when, you, when we talk about violence against sex workers, sex workers are there vulnerable and exposed to men who want to commit an act of violence and do so with impunity because they know that that worker is either working with somebody else, so in effect they're criminalised and they couldn't go and report that to the police, also that they, um, they might be working on the street, so they, they couldn't go to the police because they're in effect criminalized for soliciting. So the sex workers are rendered vulnerable to violence by people who want to carry out acts of violence that is misogynistic usually at its core. So I think that's the first thing that sex workers are made vulnerable because they're exposed to violence that probably would happen towards any women but sex workers. And we saw it with like the Yorkshire Ripper, for example, when people thought that he was just um, targeting or murdering sex workers, nobody really 
talked about it, nobody was really caring until it came to light that he was also targeting respectful women. And there was a quote from even, I think, the chief constable at the time that said, perhaps the worst thing about this is now that he's targeting, I think he said respectable women. But so it's that, that sex workers are made vulnerable and do people care when they are, I guess, the, the point of somebody wanting to enact misogynistic violence? I don't know much in terms of I've never studied nor, to be honest, worked that closely with men. Um, I could see an argument for that. And if there was, um, I think generally, if people had more mental health services, and people do need mental health services, but again, there's, I think, a, a bit of a stigma around men accessing mental health services. So it would be around mental health services that are, yeah, I could, probably coming back to what you were saying as well about education, about talking about things like that in school from a very early age and how it's okay not to be okay and all of these things or to work through your problems as a man doesn't demasculinate you. So I think that there's a lot happening in that side as well that I think sex workers are just easy targets and they become prey to people. I don't think that there's been um, an increase in terms of, I think that it's always happened, basically sex workers have always been victim of male violence and misogynistic violence because they're made easy targets by the laws, by the stigma and by the fact that nobody really cares or nobody acts like they care. I suppose it's almost self-justifying to the the kind of man that would do such a thing is that, well, I, at least I'm not targeting the good ones. Um, you yeah. know, it's the, they have made a choice and by that choice, they make themselves less than human, therefore, uh, potential target or victim it's yeah it's, it's a crazy mindset that is at its core created by government policy and is perpetuated by the, the mainstream media narratives it's i think that's it about being non-human i think you're right there and that even when we talk about like violence and the overexposure to i think you said to porn or whatever it is that's happening it's around the fact that hopefully still in real life in the context of meeting a person um face to face you see that person as a human whereas society history structure patriarchy stigmatization treat tell us and tell men to not see a sex worker as a human they're non-human and i think that's the kind of that they're disposable that they are vulnerable and that it's okay to carry out acts of violence on a sex worker that perhaps even that man wouldn't on on somebody else who was a non-sex worker so in the same way i suppose we have uh, harm reduction centers for alcohol in pubs and clubs. We then know by the nature of clubs. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's quite right. I didn't realize how loud my headphones were there until I came through. <laughs> my heart is jumping out my chest. That scared the crap out of me. <laughs> it's quite all right. <laughs> I forget how sort of intimate it is in, in this little setup in the corner as well. And yeah, you get really into it until a loud sound like that occurs. Um, so yeah, my point was then that because of the nature of nightclubs, the, the repetitious beats, the fact that it's almost designed to be an after pub thing, it's once you're a bit more loaded, um, the nature of the drinks that they sell and the environment and climate that it creates means that they need security, means that it's then created an infrastructure around moving these people around through the, the taxi ranks in every city and town. There is an entire infrastructure to help prevent that, that harm that is then put there effectively through government policies, then also regulated through the local councils. So that being said, is there a way to almost circumnavigate national law and get local councils to almost create ordinance or bylaws that in some way could create regulated brothels that are not regulated but regulated do, do, do you know what i mean yeah. 
I mean, we had we have had situations throughout pockets of the UK where that has happened. In Edinburgh, for example, we've had saunas in Edinburgh for years, even after the saunas here in Glasgow were closed down. The Edinburgh sauna still operated um, just as as venues, and they there was a blind eye approach taken to it by that council. I think that what we're seeing um, more so of though is that in these areas that are more supportive, um, that there's a bit more of a crackdown recently and that's come from a bit more of vigilantism that's come alongside this um, media narrative and uh, prohibitionist lobby groups talking about the fact that all these women in the saunas are trafficking victims and they're chained to radiators and this kind of feminized sex slave has become what people think of when they think of a sauna now whereas before it was these are women who are working and we turn a blind eye because they're safer in a premises than they are working from the street so this kind of yeah the vigilantism I'm not sure I think where it happens where councils do take that kind of uh, blind eye approach so I don't think it's around bylaws we don't have the power here in order to do that but in terms of turning a blind eye it's come under attack a lot more recently and I think what coronavirus has done in a negative way I think there's a lot of positives that have, have come out in terms of the way that people think around people who were left without work and um, I think that there was a bit more compassion there for sex workers at the time because we were saying that you know all people who were doing in-person jobs were left without work so it felt that was like a slight commonality between people um, but what came from it was a rise in vigilantism and people watching what other people were doing obviously because of our own fear um, and I think that because of that, sex workers found that many of their neighbours, for example, now that they are starting to accept work again in their apartment, for example, people are starting to look a bit more, people mm -hmm. are almost kind of policing each other's behaviour. Um, yeah. And I think that that's maybe just still related to our anxiety around coronavirus that we all probably still have, but long term will dissipate, hopefully, because that is... Uh, we don't want that in our society either and that is really i think when people start turning on each other because of their own fears and insecurities yeah, absolutely it all but it does boil down to that because like i what i don't understand is how people haven't figured out um that it's less hassle to not give a shit in the most positive way about what another person does as long as they're not hurting anybody it's less hassle you can't you that weight it's gone from your shoulders you can just make that decision to just go grand leave them if, as long as they're happy is it's it? literally that that's it but yeah. i mean it, i mean i mean that's where you need to get to <laughs> you know what i mean that little switch I, I you know what i mean it needs to happen in in, in men predominantly you know men are bastards and uh, I, i'll say that uh, um and somebody somebody will have taken their headphones off having listened to this and gone how how fucking dare he say that about me? Do you see? Do you see yeah. how 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 self victimization it, it comes into it? it autom autom almost automatically. Do you know that kind of way? And go on, simply. You want to get in there? Fuck. Uh, we well, no. Yeah, you, you're right though. Is in the sense that there's a, a certain sense of insecurity, and there's a certain sense of, I guess, um, transference to use a psych psychology yeah. term. So it's in the sense that they are fearful, they are scared, they are watching mainstream news, they are running through social media. It's the end of the world. Oh my god, if I touch somebody, I'm going to die. I'm going to I'm going to kill like forty people around me. Everything's going to come to an end. So then, yeah, the curtain twitching increased because it was a way of going. If I can transfer my fear and my 
pain from the internal world to the external world and justify it by the actions of others. The number of raids that increased on cannabis growers went through the fucking roof because everyone was watching what everyone was doing. What's coming in and out of that house? Who's coming in and out of that house? Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? And it, it is just that basic thing of going, oh, I'm right to be fearful. I've justified it. It's okay. And they're happy to live in that self-fulfilling prophecy and narrative rather than challenge the narrative that they're taking, their media diet and going, well, what is the situation? What are the facts? So I think, yeah, that's a a really interesting, um, a really interesting point. And generally of of just insecurity, like you say, I think that if men were more secure in, in, in general, I think that we would live in in a better society because then our sexuality wouldn't be, threatened by the existence of homosexuals and I, I don't i'm not saying that i'm not homophobic what i mean by that is the general population and the general consensus i mean look at the thing with matt damon recently yeah. that come out and he said that oh, a couple of months ago i stopped using the f word by the f word i use for context here was faggot and it was because of a conversation with his, his his daughter and yet in most circles in most men's locker rooms as it were in gyms or whatever it's still that's the the taunt or oh, you're a pussy or oh, you're a faggot or oh, you're you are in some form less masculine and that is the ultimate insult by whatever way that I get to you by saying, ah, oh, you don't eat enough meat or you didn't drink as many pints as us or you couldn't kick that football as far. Whatever the arbitrary measure is, that is the competitive nature that has been installed in the insecure man. Because if man is insecure, we are frail, we are fallible, we are uh, malleable, we are moldable into whatever society or patriarchy wants us to be. The patriarchy isn't every man, but it manifests in every man that isn't conscious enough to recognize their actions. And it starts with going, if you then, as stupid as it is, if you watch and engage in porn, of then asking what yourself, what porn you engage in, why you enjoy what content it is. Ask yourself then how that fits with your larger philosophy and ethics. Don't keep it in a dark shell, in an isolated corner of going, well, I wouldn't punch a woman in the face on the street, but then you would actually pressure and assault and violate women in private, drunken in nightclubs, and just assume, oh, it's just banter in it. Until that is brought into the light, the cognitive dissonance will keep our sexuality and our expression of our sexual selves, our animalistic self as as violence or as the perversions that we explore within the bedroom. And I say perversions, not in a derogatory sense. Do you know what I mean? And we need that confidence to be able to recognize that rather than having an entire culture of men that, I was going to say, are afraid of their own arsehole there, but that is a crude joke, but you know what I mean. It's... And how do you do it? Like, I feel... The, the idea of raising the consciousness isn't it it's not just around more mental health support it's not just around access to services or whatever help we're going to give it's like as a community as like a world how do you raise our consciousness above this idea that we're just walking through life and we're all stuck in the same systems and the same we drink like patriarchy in the water you know it's it's there it's in us and it's about recognizing and then coming to that point of new content or higher consciousness to see that but I had the opportunity to do that and I I had that opportunity to come into a space and have the time and have the peace and have the break away from life in order to to get to that point and not many people do so I think it again maybe coming back to it's about earlier on in life like it's bringing out that idea that it's yeah can you teach that in a way can you give people opportunities through a curriculum that was based on having higher level consciousness you know coming to your your conscious awareness and we don't do that at the moment where everything is around teaching a curriculum English maths and drug use is bad prostitution is even worse and <laughs> like it's there's just something that 
furthermore to add to your point sorry i didn't mean to interject uh, to add to your point uh, i've said it i said it uh on on a previous podcast is like you're you're taught what to be you're not taught how to be do you you understand the difference it's like no 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 kid is taught well well why does this make you angry well why do you feel this way why do you think this this is wrong do you know that kind of way? Because you can't, oh, you can't ask those questions because children are thick. <laughs> you, I'm, I'm, I'm being, I'm being, uh, you know, silly on purpose, but it's that's not true. Not true. They're fucking sponges. They're clever, man. They're more clever. They're more fucking clever than I am. Do you know that kind of way? So it's like we, we, as a society, need to update to fucking. Um, operating system 2021 please instead of fucking minus what's it 2000 bc some sh- do you know that kind of way it's it's fucking it's madness we've got to we rid ourselves of this reluctance that if we have any sort of societal change that that we're gonna we're gonna uh, feel some sort of level of self-victimization do you know that kind of way down the patriarchy there you go there's that's the summary <laughs> fucking yeah. All problems sorted right there. Well, it's a sort of alluded to before of, of the, the patriarchy again is it's capitalism in this sense. It is the, the modern system that or rather that is the socioeconomic branch of the patriarchy, as it were. The religious branches are the uh, Abrahamic religions, whichever one you choose to ascribe to. Even a lot of the older world. Um, actually, no, scratch that. Wait, I'm running through something in my head. No, actually, very few of the old world religions had such formed structures. It is mostly the the new world, as it were, if you could term it in terms, I'm thinking Jainists, Buddhists, what became Hindus, etc. Some of the more modern branches and interpretations of those religions, yes, do have a lot of misogyny within them, but generally their ancient teachings are not based on the same sort of narrative that we humorously discussed around Jesus and Mary. But there is still then, it is true that these structures, if not challenged, install in the average individual this autonomy and this authority that they are allowed to oppress and abuse not just women but anyone that is gay because again that is wrong as well you know and i think this is why you've seen a mass i see i'm not meaning that i'm speaking hyperbole of being in their position i'm just cla- i'm just clarifying totally for anyone isn't. that just went I'm, oh i'm putting I'm gonna, that on a t-shirt i'm gonna clip that out i'm gonna clip that out and make it a clip and just, just <laughs> but yeah, my, my, my point is that then the rise of what we're seeing or rather the rise of the backlash to the lgbtq movement at the minute of the you can't teach that in our curriculum you know the rainbow sheep and all of this daily mail bloody fueled yeah. backlash that we are seeing is a response to a narrative that isn't happening it's a exactly. response to an attack that isn't there. Exactly. These are progressive ideas that have been taught to children, not as a way of whitewashing or destroying or erasing the cultural history that has come before it, but as a way to challenge it in a constructive way to have a dialogue and a discussion that if then some choose to live under that structure and decide to continue to get married and follow the nuclear family and the career ladder and all of that shit, all power to you. I don't mind. I, I honestly don't care. If that's what you want to live, you go live that. But by no means should your existence and your continuation of living that way oppress anybody that chooses not to. And that is the difference. And I think that whether it be sex work reform, whether it be drug work, uh, drug law reform, whether it be uh, the campaign to end racism or xenophobia or any kind of bigotry and hatred towards any form of other, mm-hmm. I think is, is all a fight toward the same thing. And that is a true human equity, a recognition that. Yes, I may be sat here as a man, I may be white, I may be straight, I may be all the things that I could list off, but none of them define who I am. 
I am first and I am foremost, I am human. I have the same rights as everyone else. But yeah. those conversations are, are still a long way off because as you alluded to earlier, the imaginary borders, the arbitrary lines we've, we've defined across the world that restrict us from each other. That means I can sit here as an Englishman and go, ah, those bloody Indians. Oh, the bloody Kenyans. You know what I mean? I'm still, the, my, my ancestors would say that I'm entitled to that. There are still gentry in this fucking country that talk like that, that act like that. Some of them, Jacob Rees-Mogg, currently sit in parliament and make a great deal of money in this fucking country. You know, it's, it's ridiculous that these antiquated ideologies, that these old world mentalities, these, these abhorrent and disgusting villainous ide ideologies still permeate the highest sex of our society. I actually look around at some of the people I live with, some of the commonest, most down to earth, like got nothing to the name, fucking uh, hand to mouth sort of people are some of the least bigoted I know. Yet the media expresses that it's all the lower class, it's all the raw. And yeah, there's a good chunk of them. There are a good chunk of them. We, we see them quite often, usually around football games or pubs, etc. But ge the general population have become quite accepting. I then think of friends who are, uh, are in continual dialogues with their parents that are now suddenly going, oh, well, there's a gay on TV. You know, oh, there's a trans person on Corey. I don't know if there is, but I'm just you know, alluding to it sort of thing. And they're asking those questions and those intergenerational conversations are what is, is, is eroding that ignorance. So the war is already in a lot of ways kind of being won, but it's not being won by collective organization that in some ways we empower those that are doing it, but it is the youth that are then curious enough. And it is that which they will try to destroy most is our curiosity. Yeah. Because that is what is the most powerful thing we have is that annoying little toddler in your head going, but why, but why? But why? If we could weaponize that, we could we could end all of these systems of oppression. Because if enough people were curious enough to ask why and dogged enough and passionate enough to follow through with it and to find out and then create platforms, create spaces and create dialogue that then discusses what they have found, we advance culture and society far more than sat here with or wandering around with picket signs and whatever trying to create um create that change. The change is individual. It is as I've spoke of in recent podcasts, it's the droplets of water that make up the river that erodes the rock. You know what I mean? And that's what we're building to right now is the recognition that the commonality between yours and mine struggle. You know what I mean? Is the recognition that first and foremost, the victims that we are choosing to fight for, uh, the oppressed that we are choosing to speak for are human. Yeah. And I think that is the 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 ultimate truth of this. Yeah, I just, you said that so well, I don't, yeah. He does, so that. he does that. He does that. You're trying. You're trying to pay attention to one point, and he's already six points ahead down the fucking line. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, no, but it's that. It's humanity, isn't it? And I hope after coming out of coronavirus, particularly having that sense of connection that has not been there for the last year, and a lot has come out of it that is positive and negative of course but having that sense that we can be in the world with one another again and see the humanization of one another and that i hope will because there's a lot of politicization that's happened through coronavirus things like black lives matter for example we've done a lot of advocacy around sex workers rights there's a lot of advocacy around drug policy reform but it's almost that it's lost that sense of us being in a room and and connecting with one another again and i think that if humanity loses that long term then the damage that can come from that could be could be really awful so i think hopefully with everything opening back up and that sense of fear and insecurity that we spoke about earlier as that dissipates and we mm -hmm. learn to enjoy that feeling of being connected again with one another 
but also being able to travel and be in other places and see new things we're not just bogged down with the same four walls and I think that's maybe making people's mindsets a bit smaller at the moment so I hope that afterwards when we kind of come to it will be like a rebirthing of experiencing the world you know that we've maybe before taken for granted it's my and optimism for coronavirus that's that's a beautiful way of looking at it I hadn't actually thought of it that yeah the the physical imprisonment that a lot of people have done whether it be through their own uh sort of mindset or in in the fact of the physical world of being stuck in the house and then only leaving once every five days or whatever to go shopping or you know really a lot of people are still in the peak of lockdown in their own lives all the restrictions have lifted a lot of people are back back to it as it were a lot of people haven't managed to, to make that step and i think that yeah they are probably in a lot of ways some of the people perpetuating the most hate that are still holding up the polarized um, sort of binary sides of things in our in our culture and society, and I think that that is one of the ultimate forms to control discourse. Is you create a binary, send it out in the world, watch the people destroy themselves because they get too too busy fighting over the binary than discussing the actual argument and conversation. I echo your hope, serious hope, real hope, that yeah we will get back to at some point or evolve into a new form of, of, of interpersonal interactions that we will start to congregate in other ways that if we can't go inside and, and frequent small businesses that maybe we can do festivals, larger food markets outdoors that we can engage in those kind of ways that shows the diversity in a, in a physical way that has that juxtaposition of, of class, of race, of, of thought, of uh, creative expression. And I think that when we can see that again and see that spectrum of humanity, rather than just the tailor-made algorithm of, of content that comes into you via social media or the, or the films and TV that you choose to watch or the radio you choose to listen to, that is, it is ever nuanced towards your worldview. That, yeah, if you're not challenged, how can you grow? So, yeah, with that being said, um, I'm going to get a couple more questions for a little lightning bounce. Where is sort of the campaign today and what can people do to support it? So the campaign today is um, with the policing and crime sentencing bill. Um, we had amendments that were tabled to bring in the criminalisation of clients, which is known as the Nordic model. So they say that that's a way to decriminalise the sex worker and you criminalise the demand. So it's setting up this narrative in law. We know that, that you can't criminalise one side, but more um, worse than that is that in context where it has come into place legally, sex workers have experienced higher levels of violent crime um, but are still continued to be um, arrested and prosecuted for working together because it's still it doesn't take away any of the brothel keeping laws so it doesn't actually decriminalize the seller it only takes away the criminality of selling sex alone in an isolated place where you're at higher risk of violence clients or perpetrators of violence or potential perpetrators of violence know that so it increases um, the likelihood that they can attack a sex worker so it runs at risk but those um those amendments were not accepted at this stage so there's a slight pause in activism right now in the uk of the sex workers rights movement which is a welcome pause considering we are coming out of coronavirus people have experienced a whole year of not being able to work so many of the projects are trying to think of you know, ways to bring people back together again, ways to ensure that people are getting back um, access into sexual health testing, mental health support and everything else. But we're expecting in the autumn that those amendments will um, be brought to the House of Lords 
and we expect that the person uh, so is Dame Diana Johnston is not going to give up in her campaign to bring in this model of legislation that would criminalise clients in England and Wales. We have here in Scotland a very similar approach um, being taken by our community safety minister, Ash Denham, who hopes to also criminalise the demand to criminalise the paying of for sex, but um, apparently decriminalise the selling of it. So it's an age old argument and debate and it's a campaign that, you know, there's no let up on their side and I don't think there'll be a let up on the sex worker side. In terms of what people can do to support, I think, um, firstly, to follow groups like Decrim Now UK, um, a group called Swarm, um, which is Sex Worker Hive, which is a, a collective of sex workers throughout the UK, ECP, that's the English Collective of Prostitutes, ourselves, Umbrella Lane, and there's another group here, Scott Pep. So seek out and follow and share and support and stand in solidarity with sex worker led campaigns is the first most obvious one, I guess. The second one, I guess, relates back to that always asked why these bills, these motions, these campaigns to criminalise clients sound like really positive approaches to supporting people. And often they co-opt the language of the sex workers rights movement by talking about we are decriminalising sex work. And that's when that happens to always ask why and seek out the groups that are led by people with lived experience and current involvement in sex work. Because what they also do is then when we talk about peer leadership, lived experience being at the forefront of the debate, they will then actively seek people who have left the sex industry who are willing then to campaign on behalf of bringing in more criminal criminalization. So ensuring that it's also active sex worker groups that you're following and supporting and sharing. Excellent. Would you uh, kindly, in your leisure, provide me with uh, all of the links that you yeah. just, just spoke of there, so I include them in yeah. the bios so that um, anyone that's interested or anybody that needs access to service can do so. Yeah. Um, the final question I'll ask you is the same question I ask every guest. Uh, well, let's say every guest for the past 20 episodes, maybe it's been, um, which is what does the future hold for you? I love the silence of each guest when I ask Everybody. that question. It's like, it's like I can ask Everybody. any question about the profession, but every guest kind of goes, the world is going to end. I don't know. I don't know how to answer this. Uh, I think the future for me is to continue to ask why. I think I, I'm so fortunate and every day thankful that I have that brain and mentality and I've had an opportunity to come to thinking and looking at the world in this way that I do you always ask why? I always, if something comes to me from the news, for example, I wonder what's behind it. I love deconstructing it. So I'll continue to do that, I hope, and I hope that I never, never don't. I want to continue to learn. I think through this period of lockdown, it has been extremely busy supporting people in, in crisis. Um, everybody's been doing the best that we can, but we're a really small group within Umbrella Lane. So it's been busy and I hate being a busy person because that's where you don't take the opportunity maybe to, to read and to learn. And I'd like to have the time to do that. So for me, I'd like to take a bit of a um, stop check on where I'm at and ensure that I'm continuing to feed that, that part, that consciousness. And this conversation has actually been a really wonderful reminder to, to keep doing that and to take the time to do it as well. Um, yeah, continue to ask why. And I do feel a sense of change coming. I don't know what it is, and maybe it's just the easing of restrictions, but I've really missed traveling. I've missed seeing new things, meeting new people, connecting with people 
um, in person. So just enjoying that, but really coming to do that with a much greater appreciation of the opportunity to do that and be with people in person and see new things and just value life and living. Excellent. Perfect response. Perfect response. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Anastasia Ryan, for joining us uh, this evening and for giving us your time. Uh, as I've said, folks, you will be able to find all of the links below to various services, uh, as well as Numbrella Lane and a lot of the other things that we have mentioned in this evening's recording. Um, yeah, just all that's left to say is thank you very much for, for joining us this evening. Thank you guys so much for having me. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation and learned so much as well. Um, which has just been wonderful so thank you excellent likewise likewise um as i say guys you can keep up with uh, dr anastasia ryan we'll put a link to twitter and whatnot so you can keep up with all of her great activism and work there um if you've enjoyed this video if you've enjoyed this podcast as always check us out on patreon.com forward slash a simple life where for less than a cup of tea a week or rather a meal deal i suppose you can help keep the lights on at this little place and you can help fund us into product earth and paradise gardens which are coming up in the next month so do check them out folks we have a 20 percent discount code for paradise gardens it is simper 20 simper s-i-m-p-a that is my name if you don't know by now i don't know why or how you've got to the end of this podcast simper 20 will get you 20 percent off paradise tickets right cheers folks check us out on social media and we'll be back next week. Peace. Bye. Bye.